I'll begin again with a reminder about the Jeffrey Living paraphrase of C.S. Lewis. And you'll remember it came out this way. It is a good rule after reading a new book never to allow yourself another new one till you have read an old one and an in-between one in between. And also the uh, quote from Wynton Marsalis about not going back to Duke Ellington but having to go forward because he was so far ahead of his time. In this case, I would say if McComiskey was ahead of his time, we are going to be looking at Edward John Carnell. It may be that he was even further ahead of his time, and in some ways that was very sad. And so I don't want to convey the impression again that this fits into Lewis's designation of old or Marsalis's designation of being ahead of his time, but there is something to be said there. And again, I have two concerns. Very similarly, there is a great deal of attention paid to very old books or very new books, and these in-between books don't get attention. The men in the middle uh, need to get some attention. McComiskey was in the middle theologically, but he kind of led a quiet life, low profile. That is not true of Edward John Carnell. He did not have a quiet life. He did not uh, keep a low profile. And uh, him being in the middle, he was in the middle of a hurricane. He was in the eye of a storm. And, uh, and it devastated him. I wrote to John when uh, he asked about doing a book review and my comment on why I wanted to do this book is I said, I wonder how many are familiar with Carnell and his works. I find much in this collection of his essays published two years after his death by Ronald Nash, such as his reactions to fundamentalism and his points about church government that remind me of things I have heard taught by you and others. Another example of the value of Carnell's work is how he raises the bar on the subject of Christian ethics in a very provocative theological manner. This year is the 40th anniversary of the publication of the book, 69 to 2009, and the 50th anniversary of Carnell's publication of The Case for Orthodox Theology, which is one of the landmarks in his career. And part of that work is reproduced in this work. I really do believe we can profit from interacting with I get emotional about the man. And reflecting on the writings published by Dr. Carnell, which take us back a half century or more. Carnell is definitely another man in the middle. This time we consider someone, as I mentioned, who ends up in the eye of the storm, the middle of the theological battlefield of his day. And one of the leading lights of the neo-evangelicals around whom the battle over inerrancy raged. My concern, as in the case of Dr. McComiskey, is that we often seem most critical of those closest to us. Where we should be profiting from interaction with them, we may be failing to do so through neglect. Despite disagreement, and there is, and sometimes not even knowing what to do with what he said, uh, disagreement that could be sharp at times, frustrations, inconsistencies, failures that we may detect in them in their lives and in their writings, we still may find areas of agreement that are valuable and many useful teachings. They can provoke us and further us along in our own teachings. We need to be able to learn from these men. Now, Dr. Uh, Nash 
who edited this volume has passed on in 2006 and at the time of his passing, the best of my information, he was teaching at Southern. He had previously taught at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida and I'm very thankful to Dr. Nash for what he did when he pulled this volume together. It is a good introduction to Carnell's works. What we actually have in this volume in 16 chapters is 25 extracts from Carnell's works that in some cases in a single chapter Nash has interspersed. And they range from 1950, original publication in an article, to 1965. I was born in 1950, so I mean, we'd like to, my lifetime, you know, it, all of these things that come out starting from the year of my birth. And so over those 15 years of publication, he, uh, Nash was burdened that some of this stuff had not received the attention that it was worthy of being put out there. And I'm afraid it may be gathering dust on shelves or maybe it had never uh, been read. And now he's published eight other volumes. Most of them have to do with apologetics or philosophy. And you might not ever wade through any of those volumes. But you will get a taste of them here along with quite a few other things. And in my opinion, working through this volume, maybe you'll disagree, but it comes as close to being a systematic theology of Carnell's thoughts and his writings as I've ever seen. And it seems that Nash may have arranged it with that kind of a thing in mind, but he didn't say that. It's just my impression. Here's something you need to appreciate about Dr. Carnell as we move along in this, this book and his writings. If there is a William Cooper of theologians or apologists, he's the man. Now here's what I mean by that. If you know anything about the life of William Cooper, I don't know if anyone's ever suggested that about Carnell, but if you know anyone that would fit that title as the William Cooper of theologians more than this man, I'd like to know who it is. And here's what happened to him. There's three different high points I've been able to pick out in his life or low points as it turned out. Significant climactic events. When he was asked to be president of Fuller Seminary, now some of this I got firsthand from Harold Lincell. He came to a prayer breakfast in Lancaster when I was there right after the Battle for the Bible was published and I got to ask him some questions one-on-one. -on -one. Good friend of Dr. Carnell, close to him, and by that time he was gone. And he believed that because he suffered from what Lynn Sell's interpretation was a possible psychological perfectionism, that it was a bad move for him to become an administrator and become a president of a seminary. He went into it with his eyes open, so that may have led to what happened. But when he became president, his inauguration, he delivered his inaugural address in May of 1955. This ends up becoming a chapter in a book titled The Inaugural Disaster. Carnell between him and the board of directors, there was a decision made it would never be published in his lifetime. When he went back to his office that day, according to William Sanford Lestore, there were four men waiting for him to nail his eye to the wall. Carl Henry, Harold Linsell, John Woodbridge, and Wilbur Smith. How would you like to be the president of a seminary, deliver your inaugural address, and have those four men waiting to take you into your office and school you? Some people, John Woodbridge's memories that happened the next day, there might have been a follow-on meeting. Some people say um, Carnell never recovered from that. Then in 1959, he published the case for Orthodox theology four years later. 
And instead of just taking on and explaining orthodoxy, and, and you have to admire Carnell. He was bold when he, he called it like he saw it, and sometimes he paid the price for it. When he did this book, he didn't just take on liberalism and neo-orthodoxy. He looked on the other side, too, and took on the fundamentalists and just lit them up. It needed to be said. I might not have been prepared to receive that back in the 70s, but I'm reading it 40 years later. It's prophetic. Then in 1962, he's invited to go and ask questions of Karl Barth at the University of Chicago. The only other ones that were allowed there, Jaroslav Pelikan was the moderator, was a lawyer, a rabbi, a priest, and I believe a liberal from the Southern Methodists. And there was one other fellow, I, don't, I haven't yet figured out who that was. But anyway, he was the only evangelical there. The questions had to be submitted in advance, giving Bart time to prepare an answer. Carnell happened to put a parenthetical remark on his question about scripture and the problems in scripture, which Bart then read publicly, where Carnell said, I struggle with these things too. And it was misunderstood. And then when Bart gave an answer, that was not satisfying. And at the time, the current president of Fuller, Richard Mao, was sitting next to Gordon Clark. Days later, Clark printed a, a report in Christianity Today. He was Carnell's mentor. I studied under him at Wheaton, and the way Carnell received that. The next issue of Christianity Today, Harold and Sell tried to answer Clark and explain why Carnell did what he did. He did not respond because of the time factor. But there he was silent and let Bart's answer stand. Mm -hmm. Just by the fact he went, they ate him alive. Then by the, the way the question was answered and his silence there, so that every time the guy turns around in his life with these significant events, it thinks, seems like he's got a target painted on his back. He was not equipped to handle this. So here is why we think of him as the possible William Cooper of theologians or apologists. He suffered from severe depression, chronic insomnia, that I, I first learned of it from Dr. Lancel, but in the research it is documented, where he received electroshock therapy, was on barbiturates. When he died, alone in a hotel room, it was due to an overdose of barbiturates that the coroner was enable, unable to determine whether it was accidental or intentional. However, there remained a quantity of pills in the bottle. So if it was intentional, the thought was, why would he do that? So the, that, that raised a question. And when one biographer, Nelson, went to research and see firsthand his autopsy report, the coroner was sitting there going, oh my, my goodness, this is really unusual. And he goes, what are you talking about? He didn't know what he was looking at. He was looking at Carnell's autopsy report. And he goes, what's so unusual about it? He says, how many requests we have gotten over the years for copies of this? I don't know who, and I don't know why, but it sounds like a bunch of vultures trying to prove something about somebody they disagreed with. I'll just throw that out there. So we have a man who was one of the tragic figures in 20th century evangelicalism. And there was a time when his name was a red flag, a bad word. One of those, that fuller crowd, so you might think it's strange that I would recommend that you interact with this book. You might not question it if you interact with it yourself. Briefly, his career 
From Wheaton College under Gordon Clark to Westminster under Murray and Van Til, on to Harvard Divinity School under E.S. Breitman, where he did his doctorate on the concept of dialectic and the theology of Reinhold Niebuhr. If you have insomnia, maybe you want to get that and read it. Before. <laughs> then he went to Boston University and did another doctorate. So he, had, he was a double doctorate, theology and philosophy, the problem of verification in Soren Kierkegaard. Those doctorates are not published, but they were later, the doctorate itself isn't published, published as a book. So they're both out there. Then he, he actually pastored a church in Marblehead, Massachusetts. I don't know if that's near any of our Massachusetts folks. And then taught at Gordon Co College and Divinity School, and then went on to Fuller in 1948 to 1954 when he became president. And then he got out of that in 1959. And in his uh, last years as a professor there, 59 to 67, he was noted for his eccentricities. So he was in a state of decline. His books range from an introduction to Christian apologetics in 1948, that, where he won a national prize as a bright, young, rising star in evangelicalism, $5,000 in 1948. And uh, to television, servant or master, and on. But we're running short of time, so I want to just throw a few things out to you. There are quotes from elsewhere in his works that I know you'll appreciate, and some of them are ringing my changes with things I've heard here. Whenever a systematic theologian becomes too systematic, he ends up falsifying some aspect of revelation. And I heard mention of future grace by John Piper here. In two places, on a facing page and in the text itself, he quotes Carnell's Christian commitment, where Carnell said, we cannot ignore inconsiderate acts in others yet we cannot execute the penalty of law. We have no right to complete the moral cycle. Although we sense no spiritual inhibition against crying out against injustice, the purity of our moral life deteriorates the moment we attempt to administer justice. And before I wrap this up, I want to comment to you that I, I contacted Pastor Ray Ortland, who quoted Carnell's inaugural address, so I thought maybe he had it, because he, and then I found out he grew up in Carnell's household, was friends with his children. He didn't have it. Well, he does now, because I was able to track it down. They actually published it as one of the chapters in this book by Russ Spittler, Fuller Voices. And so the inaugural address is out there if you want to read a copy of it. I was going to read a quote from it, which has been quoted at least three times within the last two years on the internet. That was something he gave as an address in 1955. Uh, what the man is known for, one of the other things, is the criticism of J. Gresham Machen. He accused J. Gresham Machen in his writings, the case for orthodox theology of yielding to anarchy and violating the doctrine of the church by leaving the Presbyterians. Now, that, that's a pretty significant thing, a pretty bold thing to stand up and do, whether you agree with him or disagree with him. He's also known for the issue of inerrancy and his dealing with Karl Barth and threshold evolution, but on apologetics, he is second to none. In the volume Jerusalem and Athens, two only two chapters are devoted to any subject in here, and that subject is Carnell and Van Til. That's a very significant volume, critical discussions on the philosophy and apologetics 
of Cornelius Van Til, and Gordon Lewis, who taught at Denver Seminary for many years, was actually my textbook in Bible college, testing Christianity's truth claims. He spends, on all the other apologists he deals with, he spends 130 pages. He spends 100 pages on Carnell. There is no getting around his significance for apologetics, and a man named John Sims published a volume, Missionaries to the Skeptics, Christian Apologists for the 20th Century, C.S. Lewis, Edward John Carnell, and Reinhold Niebuhr. That's quite a package. One of the lessons I think we can learn from his life is that straddling the fence really requires a balancing act because he really put himself in the middle. You really need to be, and you need to be able to handle it. And then what happens when you're in the middle and you're getting attacks from all sides and some of it's mean and cruel and vicious? It, it's easy to get bitter and hardened by it. How we respond to that and react to that, I think there's some lessons we can learn from him both about what to do and what not to do. Now just, I'm only going to go to the first chapter and the last chapter. If you could just see like one quote or two from each chapter, but we don't have the time. You can see me after, I can get it to you. There's some dynamite stuff here. The tragedy of a divided church is almost as old as the joy of a united church. When Luther and his congregation sang, a mighty fortress is our God. One of the great moments in the life of the church was realized. Some of you will like this one. Some of you may wonder about it. Calvinism had no excuse for freezing theological inquiry at the level of the institutes. He's a Calvinist, but listen to what he says. A careful examination of that document will show that Calvin himself, despite his great genius, failed to harmonize the divine decrees with human responsibility. Now, if a theology is defective at such a critical point, how can it serve as a norm of fellowship? Whoa. <laughs> Although Methodism did little to advance the dialogue in classical theology, it did write an inspiring chapter in frontier evangelism. That's all just from the first chapter. And I could go on with the first chapter, but let's just go to the last chapter and wrap it up. A Christian may know little about the furniture of heaven, but he's sure of one thing. And this is all that matters. As the Apostle Paul noted long ago, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. What more could the heart desire? Jesus does not distribute photographs of heaven, nor does he satisfy the standards of science and philosophy, but he does satisfy the convictions of the heart, and he satisfies them with the highest of all possible evidences. Jesus promises an eternal home to all who trust him. What more could be asked?